Hey, a couple weeks ago, I talked to you about sense of where God's taking us in the future, and I uh, just want to, in the weeks to come, begin painting some pictures for us to help us understand uh, what we're talking about when we say that uh, we are cloud followers. And uh, remember the, those three horizons we drew uh, that we often get upside down. We, uh, we often work from a place of reason and then take our steps of faith once it makes sense to us and then hope to encounter something of God's transcendence along the journey and how that really is upside down. And when we get that, the right side up, uh, it's there that we encounter more of God's transcendence as we work from a place of, of going to him first and then taking our steps of faith, which at times feels like you're stepping out into nothing because it is scary. Walk by faith and not by sight. But as we do that faithfully and obediently, then we get to some of the, the reasons of why he's called us to move in a certain direction. So with that, we have shared with you that our sense, uh, leadership's heart sense, is that there's a great awakening coming our way in the future sometime, but more importantly, we ourselves need to wake up, that we must be as Christ followers, we are all disciples of Christ, we must wake up. And so, uh, in order to, to help us overcome the, the, this, this uh, spirit of nominalism or consumerism and to be fully engaged in the life of Christ, uh, we need to understand what it means to be a Christ follower. And so, one of the pictures I want to paint for you today to help you understand about some of the ministries that we're beginning to think about and pray about developing has to do with helping us uh, as disciples wake up. And when I say discipleship, my guess is that uh, you have a, a certain picture in your mind of what a disciple is. Um, for some, it's being a student of knowing the right things, knowing God's word or knowing theology. Uh, that might be a picture that comes to mind. For some, it's uh, this picture that's from the Gospels of Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, the, the heart of the mystic, someone who sits in the presence of God and enjoys being in his presence and hearing from him and speaking to him. For others, it's, it's being the, 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 the missionary, living out the missional life and uh, getting your hands out there in, uh, in, in the work of Christ. And the, the idea of a student or a mystic or a missionary, are, it's really three great picture, pictures. In fact, if you look at evangelicalism, you can see certain movements that gravitate to, to one or two or three of those. And, um, and my guess is that you have a natural inclination when it comes to your discipleship journey to, to living out the life of a student or perhaps the life of a mystic or the life of a missionary. Another way to put it is um, to be fully alive, to be awake, is to have our heads, our minds, uh, trained in, in righteousness and in knowing the truth, to have our hearts fully alive, so our heads, our hearts uh, fully alive, and then our hands involved in the mission, kind of picture, kind of dirt under your fingernails, out there doing the things that God's called you to do. And so what we're doing as leaders is looking at our discipleship ministries to make sure from the very beginning when someone celebrates new life in Christ with the rose, that we are training them to have their head into this discipleship journey, to have their heart in that place where they're enjoying the presence of God and know what it means to hear the voice of God and then be able to move out of a place of, of experiencing and knowing God, of using the gifts that God's given them. That's just one little picture for you to just begin praying about for yourself as you pray about, God, wake me up. It might be in one of these areas where you could say, I need to grow here, and we're praying about how to, to, uh, to arrange our ministries to help that happen. 
So I just want to give you that little bit of a picture, just toss it in your brain, have you pray about that for, uh, in the weeks to come. And again, we'll just keep painting pictures of what we mean when we say we need to wake up. And in that process, we'll, we'll share with you some decisions that we're making to position us in this place of coming alive, being awake, just pushing off the drowsiness and the sleepiness that wants to lull us to sleep and be a church as awake to the things that God has for us. Is that, is that helping you a little bit? Be praying about that if you would. Now, let me change gears without putting the clutch in so you're going to hear the gears grind because now we're going to Romans 8. All right, Romans 8, we, we've been in this chapter. Susan got us in last week, and uh, I'm going to wrap up this chapter this week. We've been going from the courtroom to the living room. We've gone through the difficult things and hearing the difficult things in the courtroom, and Romans 8 is this, this culmination uh, that just is amazing things that we're hearing, but no condemnation. The songs that Lord's led us in today of helping us understand that there's nothing that can separate us from Christ's love. We've gone from this place of condemnation, of standing before our God, and we are guilty, to now living out our life of faith in the living room, and we are sons and daughters. And wow, haven't our circumstances changed through, through Jesus Christ? It's amazing. When I was eight years old, living in the city of Hong Kong, um, we were, my parents were headed back for a furlough back in the U.S. Uh, they don't call it furlough anymore because it sounds like missionaries get a year off, um, and they didn't. It was, it was a lot of work coming back and, and preaching in churches, but uh, we came back for that furlough, and as we were coming back, um, my parents told me that our grandparents were taking us camping. Now, I had no idea what camping was. I was a city boy. Uh, I grew up uh, in the back alleys and and knowing the bus routes of one of Earth's most populated cities, the city of Hong Kong. At that time, over six million people living in that city. And this idea of going camping was foreign to me, and my mom and dad told me that Grandpa had a pickup truck that had a camper on it. I didn't know what a camper was. I'd never slept in a tent, but they talked about it as it was good, so I was starting to anticipate what it might be like to go and camp. We got back to the U.S. My grandparents were living uh, in Lewiston, Idaho. My grandfather worked for Potlatch back in those days, and, um, and we were driving one day through Lewiston, Idaho, and my, I was with my grandmother, and I saw this barren hillside and, uh, alongside the road in town, and I asked my grandmother, is that where we're going camping? And Grandma sort of laughed and said to me, no, no, we're, we're going into the woods. I didn't know what it meant to go into the woods. I'd never seen the woods. Um, and so I just began to picture in my mind, what were the woods and what was camping? And, uh, I, and I, w- I was asking lots of questions. I'm sure I drove my parents crazy. But the day came when all that anticipation and that imagination gave birth to this day that we were actually going to go camping. And, uh, and my sister and I uh, had the joy of riding in the camper, that part of the camper that, you know, back in those days, it was okay to do this. Uh, nowadays, you can't, but that, the camper that extends out over the cab, and we laid on that bed that had that window you could see out in this panoramic view of where you were driving, the little sliding, uh, you know, windows on the side with the screen um, so that uh, you got some fresh air in the camper, and we drove 
And I saw those scenes with my sister, the, the barren hillsides around Lewis and Idaho, then changing to these green hillsides where the grass is sort of swaying and dancing uh, to the music of the wind. And, and then we, we got into the, into the woods, and I saw pine trees and tamaracks, and the, the, uh, uh, the, the aroma of the, of the outdoors came in through those screen windows, and it was intoxicating. It was, it was nothing like I'd ever seen before. We pulled up to the campsite somewhere in, the, in northern Idaho. And uh, we, we got out of the camper. And uh, we just started exploring all around the campground where we would set up camp. And my grandparents and my parents set up camp. And we were in the woods. The next day... I would watch my grandfather fly fish. I'd never seen it before. And I'd watch him hook rainbow trout after rainbow trout to where his fishing creel was overflowing. And later that afternoon, he took me out to the river and showed me this little backwater eddy and taught me how to read the waters and put that fly rod in my hand. And I caught my first trout and I was hooked. In the evening... In the evening, we, 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 we barbecued the trout, and I sat there, and I, I, I ate these fish, and my stomach was full. That first night, when I'd laid in my tent, my heart was full. I was camping. I had, I had no way to imagine how good it could be. I had no frame of reference, no context to even picture what it was going to be like. I was a city boy, but I was camping. Romans 8 is a little bit like that because where Paul is taking us, he's saying to you and to me, we're going camping. Well, different words. He says, we're going and we're going to be with God forever in eternity and nothing can take that away from you. He's taking us to a place we are going to have experiences that we can't get our head around. We can't even begin to imagine how good it is. And what I'm speaking about, as we'll see in Romans chapter 8, at the end of it, is that there is a new heaven and a new earth that will be ours. We will have new resurrected bodies. It's, heaven is not some, you know, this, this, these spirits float around with their harp and their cloud making good music and taking their place in the choir. For many of us, that's a picture of hell. But for, for, for the reality, sorry, I just kind of came out. But <laughs> the reality is that it's a tangible experience, a new heaven and a new earth, the restoration of all things. We will have new bodies, and we cannot even get our heads around the, the fact that how good it will be. The tragic reality is that in our day, the talk of heaven or the talk of, of, of new heaven and new earth and eternity is often sort of minimized because, you know, if you talk about that too much, you got your head in the clouds. You might be too, too heavenly-minded uh, that you're no earthly good. And so people, it's like, you know, we got today's realities. Let's focus on today. You know, <clears throat> there's so much pain in our world today that we shouldn't talk about heaven. And I think that's that while we face the reality of today, we should never minimize the hope of heaven. And the fact that we will be with him forever. Many people poo-poo this idea. That's a deep th theological term. You can look it up later. But many people poo-poo the idea of thinking about our future with God. Because here's the reality. We were in the courtroom guilty standing before a holy judge. And by putting our faith in Christ, this salvation that is so rich that Paul uses all these languages to try and describe it. We've talked about them. Language of the courtroom, language of the temple, 
language of the slave market trade, language of accounting, language of relationship. We've gone from being guilty to being condemned to now being called sons and daughters of God. We're in the living room, but the fact of the matter is we still live in a a fallen world. You could say we're half saved. There's There's a greater reality that is ours that we must think about and ponder and hope for because it's our inheritance. C.S. Lewis, speaking on this, uh, said, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. The hope of heaven, the fact that we have been offered a holiday at sea or this, this idea that we are going camping that we can't quite get our, our heads around, sometimes that hope of heaven or that hope of, of eternity is, is obscured. Our vision is obscured because the reality, the pain of today is so real, so tangible to, to the point where the, the nerve endings of our souls throb that to think of heaven sometimes is to... to Maybe we think that we're not being authentic to our today. But the reality is, is that yes, while we deal with our pain and our suffering, we must not be satisfied with making mud pies in a slum because we have been offered a holiday at sea. And Paul will dive right into this in Romans chapter 8 in in verse 18. And in verse 18, before I even read it to you, He's going to say something because he is going to speak to the realities of our today. And I want you to engage in this. I want you to think for a moment of the single most painful time in your life. I want you to process a season in your life in which you endured much suffering. Maybe it was a divorce. Maybe you were abused. Maybe it was the loss of someone you loved Maybe you buried a child. I want you to hold that, that pain. And you may have to sort through because maybe you've had a lot of pain in your life. Sort through that list and hold it there. For, for me, uh, I, I think of the year after I went camping for the first time when my parents told me they were sending me to boarding school. Now, in those days, there weren't a lot of options for education. So it wasn't like my parents you know, you know, didn't like us and sent, a, sent us away. It was really one of the few options for kids and there was this missionary school in Malaysia. It's a Muslim country, and my parents told us they were sending us to this boarding school. And man, I'm telling you, man, it was, it was just a painful time in my life. I, my, my brother and I, I, I was nine years old, and my brother was 11, and we, we packed our bags. And, um, and mom and dad took us to the airport. And, um, and they said goodbye to us with tears in their eyes. And... As a nine-year-old, I've got my two suitcases, and I'm getting on a plane headed to a foreign country I've never been to, going to a school I've never seen, and I'm going to live with other kids I've never met. And I'll just be honest with you. Well, boarding school um, was, a, it was a very positive experience for me, but every goodbye, goodbyes are very difficult for me. And those first nights in boarding school, I slept in a room with kids from Cambodia and Thailand and Indonesia, and we all cried ourselves to sleep at night. One of those kids uh, that year would have his parents abducted in Vietnam, and they'd be missing for nine months. 
That was the reality of that day, and it was incredibly painful for me. You have your pain. You have your suffering. Hold it right there in front of your mind and relive the pain. And each of us have those moments that are so painful that the tears are really close. And they, they are tempted to spill out and go down your, cascade down your cheeks. And so you, the temptation is to push it all down because, you know, we don't, we don't want to relive that stuff. But listen to how Paul speaks of our pain when he says in Romans 8, verse 18, what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. Let me read that again. What we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. Paul is not saying my pain is not real. Paul is not saying you should minimize your suffering. It's not that big a deal. Get over it. That's not what he's saying. In fact, he's saying the opposite. Your pain is real. Your suffering is brutal. The nerve endings of your, th- of your soul are throbbing. It's, it's so tangible that it, it obscures our vision. It's hard to even imagine tomorrow. But what Paul is saying is as painful as reality is for you in your suffering, here's what you need to know. It's nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. We don't even have the context. We don't have the the, the ability to to imagine the, the realities of what it would be like to be in the new heaven and a new earth with a new body. And as I look out here, I see faces of people that I know some of your stories, your stories of suffering. I know how much pain you must be in, but I want to tell you that the word of God says that, that it's nothing compared to our future reality. Does my pain, is my pain real today? Absolutely. But there's a day coming when we're going camping. There's a day coming when we are gonna take our holiday at sea and there will be a new heaven and a new earth and new resurrected bodies, and we can't even get our heads around it. And as disciples, as Christ followers, we long for that day. And that's a good thing. In fact, what Paul is going to do here is he's gonna walk us through all this longing, this groaning, these, these heavy sighs, and you're gonna see it in three different places in this text. And he begins in verse 19 by saying, for all creation is waiting eagerly, for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse, but with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. Paul's referring to Genesis chapter one, verses, uh, ch- chapter one through chapter three about the land being cursed. And what, what he's saying is that creation longs. It, it's looking forward. You ever seen a short person at a parade? Some of you are, are that short person at a parade. You know, the, the, the floats are going by, the procession's going by, the band's going by, and there's someone who's shorter. They're kind of back some rows from the other people, and they're on their tiptoes trying to cap, you know, capture a glimpse of what's, what's going by. That's the word picture that Paul is using. Creation looks forward. Creation is on its tiptoes trying to catch a glimpse of the day when the sons and daughters of God will be revealed. It's... Creation has been subjected to this curse because of Adam and Eve's sin. And they, creation, is like this, this personification of creation. It can't wait for the day when there will be a new heaven and a new earth. 
And then he goes on to say, for we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. It's as if every earthquake, every tsunami, every famine, every hurricane, every natural disaster is like a, like a contraction. It's like a mom wanting to give birth. I was looking at baby pictures a couple weeks ago, and I could not find one picture of when our kids were being born where I took a picture of Trina having contractions. If I did, she would, have, she would have decked me. And so, but the reality is, that pain, while it was real, and while some of you know what it's like to go through that pain, while that pain was intense, it was endured because there was the hope of a day when that contractions, well, that day, hopefully, the contractions would be done, and you would hold that child in your arms. And what Paul is saying is that all of earth is on his tiptoes. Creation is in contractions, and it's hoping for the day when the father gets to hold his sons and daughters, when all things are being made new. Creation is longing. Creation is groaning. Lewis, again, captures this so well in his series on, in, on Narnia. You saw, saw, maybe you saw the movie The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or you read the book. There's this mystical wardrobe and these four children walk through it and they enter a land called Narnia where it's always winter. And they, they walk through the wardrobe and they encounter these created animals, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And in Lewis's uh, imagination, they're talking and when they see the sons of Adam and the, son, and the daughters of Eve, I'm sorry, this, yeah, the, the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve, they are just all giddy and they're excited because they say this, and, and they say this chilling phrase, Aslan is on the move. Aslan is on the move. Because the sons, the sons of God and the daughters of God have been revealed, and Mr. And Mrs. Beaver know that, that, that Narnia is about to be remade. There's gonna be a new heaven and a new earth, and, and winter is thawing. And Lewis captures this perfectly, because created things can't wait for the day when we will be restored to our rightful place. And Lewis captures it perfectly because Aslan is on the move and creation is groaning for the day when it will be restored and renewed. And then it goes on to more groaning. Creation groans, verse 23, we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a Costco sample of our future glory. I know your Bible probably says foretaste, but mine says Costco, no, it say but that's what it's like. The Holy Spirit within us is a sample, a foretaste of future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. I long for that. Don't you long for that? That those temptations would no longer have that power over us? That that illness that you're susceptible to or you're enduring right now or that, that disability you have will no longer be there? We long, we groan for the day and the Holy Spirit is, is a little sample, a foretaste of a future glory. Get this, God's glory will not just be revealed to us, God's glory will be revealed in us. And it's beautiful. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. When we went from the courtroom to the living room, it was just the beginning because we're going camping. We have a holiday at sea. We're gonna get new bodies. We will see again. We will hear. We will be able to walk. We will be completely healed. 
and it's good, and we can't get our heads around it. Creation groans, we groan, and in verse, uh, uh, verse 26, it says the Holy Spirit is groaning as well. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. In our weakness, for example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for. Ever been there? The trauma of life has you, leaves you in a place where you don't even know what to pray. You've prayed the prayer for so long, it just doesn't seem to be happening, and you just don't know, you don't know what to pray. What's the right prayer? The Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father who knows all, all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying. For the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. When we don't have the words because today's pain is so real and the nerve endings of our soul is throbbing with the trauma of today, the Holy Spirit is groaning for us and putting words to our pain. And there is a divine permitting happening on your behalf. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He's interceding for you. The Holy Spirit is groaning for you even when you don't have the capacity to know what to pray. Creation groans, we groan, the Holy Spirit is groaning and pleading, which then leads us to Romans 8.28, perhaps one of the most misused and abused verses in all of scripture, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. I say misused and abused because often when we hit pain, someone wants to tell us, it's gonna be all good, and the, and the idea is that, well, just push it down, don't, don't worry about it, and Paul is not saying push it down, don't worry about it, he's saying it is real. That pain, that suffering you held in the front of your head that brings you to the verge of tears that perhaps you're in today or you were in 10 years ago, it's real, it's traumatic. What you need to know that it, it doesn't even compare to the future camping trip, a holiday at sea you're gonna go on and you also need to know it's not going to be wasted because God has a purpose for it. And that purpose is to conform you into the image of Christ. You will be a body double of Jesus. He's using the pain and the reality of, of suffering today to conform you, to make you into the image of Christ. Which then helps us understand this next verse that theologians call sort of the golden chain because God knew his people in advance. He looks through time. He sees who will respond. He chose them to, be his, uh, to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called. He yelled your name, and you came to him. And having called them or called you, he gave you right standing, justification. You're innocent before God. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. Notice the past tense voice of this. You have his glory. We haven't experienced it yet. We're still half saved in the living room, but the day is coming. We're going on a camping trip. We're going for a holiday at sea. We will be in a new heaven and a new earth, and it's so good we can't even get our head around it. And Paul, he, he's been talking about some tough things, and when he gets to Romans chapter eight, he, he, he's telling us all this good stuff that, that's ahead of us, and he bursts out in all these questions. So if this is true, if God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us, also, won't he also give us everything else? He's done the hard thing. Don't you think he can do the easy thing? Who dares accuse us? Who then will condemn us? Oh, we're pretty good at that, aren't we? <laughs> we don't need anyone else to condemn us. We're pretty good at condemning ourselves. But he says, those words don't stick. 
No one can condemn you for Christ. Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? No. Does it mean if we experience suffering he doesn't love us? No. And then Paul just erupts in verse 38 and I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love neither death nor life neither angels nor demons neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below indeed nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul cannot even contain himself because yes the pain of today is so real but we're going camping and we've got a holiday at sea and you're going to have a new body and you're going to live in a new heaven and a new earth and all sin and all suffering will be gone and nothing can take that from you nothing not even your failures not even the places in your life you feel like you don't measure up. Nothing can take that from you because you're his son and you're his daughter. That first semester in boarding school um, for my brother and I was not a good one. Um, we were there a week and my, my brother got the mumps. The next week I got the mumps. Um, about a month later my brother was at the beach and a uh, a viper bit him on the foot, and they rushed him to the hospital, had to cut part of his foot out. Uh, and imagine as a mom or dad getting a letter, oh, by the way, your son got bit by a venomous snake today, cut out part of his foot. There's no email. You know, there's no, there's no like, you couldn't even pick up a phone and call. Um, I, I was not doing well in school. I had some really, I had a really harsh teacher. I was, I was always being held after class which I wish I could say that was the only year that it happened, but <laughs> that one I don't think was me. I, I was experiencing a, a great deal of pain. Um, I, I did not like school. Um, uh, interestingly enough, back in the mid-70s, Salem Alliance sent uh, um, some couples overseas, maybe even before the, the early 70s, but two couples came from Salem Alliance and were my dorm parents. Terry and Linda Horton were my dorm parents for many years, and Gail and Irene Fleming, who are sitting right over here, were my dorm parents for one year. And isn't it interesting how God sort of weaves our lives together? When they heard that I was becoming lead pastor, I'm sure they were frightened. Because <laughs> they know me. <laughs> but that first semester was incredibly painful for me. I so desperately wanted to get out of school that I literally punched myself in the face to give myself a bloody nose, put my head on the desk so that blood would run everywhere, and they'd rush me to the hospital or to the clinic and get me out. It worked, and then they discovered that I had mono, so they put me in the hospital. <laughs> and then the day came to go home. We packed our bags. And we were going home. And I threw my clothes in there. I'm sure I didn't fold them, because I was going home. And I wanted to be home because it was hard. And we got on a bus and we drove the airport and the teachers gave us our passports and our tickets. And now I'm 10, my brother's 12. 
And we're getting on a plane. And we're going home. We were flying into Hong Kong and plane is descending and our ears are, you know, plugged up and I didn't care. Because I was going home. We got off the plane and got our luggage and arrived at that last obstacle to being home. It was customs and we reach up and put my passport up there and the immigration officer kind of looking over down at me. He stamps my passport. And the last thing that was keeping me from home was just sliding glass doors, frosted glass, and my brother and I walked out and we took a left and we looked down this long ramp and there was this ocean of people waiting to throw their arms around people they loved that were coming home. And swallowed up in that sea was my five foot three mother. I couldn't see her. <laughs> but I could see my dad. <laughs> Waving his arms. Just waving his arms. And he threw his arms around me and said to me, you're home. And it never felt so good. You one day are going to have your passport stamped. And you do not have to be afraid. Even though the pain of today is brutal. You're going to walk through those doors and you're going to take your walk down that ramp and you're going to see a great cloud of witnesses, of people. I firmly believe that going to heaven is not a solitary event. It's experienced in community, people waiting for their loved ones to come home. But in the middle is your dad, <laughs> waving his arms. Your daddy God throw his arms around you said, welcome home, and it's going to be good, because you're going on a camping trip. You're having a holiday at sea, and you can't even get your head around how good it is. Let's pray. Well, Lord, this is supposed to be a happy moment. But we thank you that really this is a picture of reality. The trauma of today makes it hard for us to see just how good tomorrow will be. Help us to process our pain. For those who are suffering today, minister to them by your spirit. Holy Spirit, groan on their behalf. And may our eyes look up. And may we not be too easily pleased by making mud pies in the slum, O oh Lord. May our hearts rise on the wings of hope as we dream about that day when all things will be made new. May it be so. It's in your name we pray. Amen.